Well, hey there, and welcome to another episode of Rowing Chat. It's great to be back after a short break, and this time I am joined by Marlene Royal and Troy Howell. Welcome, guys. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Would you like to introduce yourselves to the listeners and tell them a little bit about your background in rowing? Marlene. Sure. Um, I started rowing when I was in high school in 1977 and went on to row in university at Boston University and spent a few years after university um, in elite training, lightweight training. Um, I actually started coaching in 1982 while I was in university at one of the first master's programs in the U.S., which was run by Boston University at that time in the summer. And have done the, the majority of my coaching over these years at Craftsbury Sculling Center and down at the, at the Florida Rowing Center, so oftentimes working in a camp setting. And have been engaged in some projects such as uh, writing ebooks for faster masters and uh, focusing on some new materials for a master's rowing advice series. So that's one of my interests right now, in addition to being in the camp setting. I, I learned to row um, in my third year at the University of Virginia, and it was uh, sort of an accident. Um, I came across a handbill lying on the ground on my way to register for classes, and it said, come join the crew, no experience necessary. And I, I attribute my choice of profession to only having rowed two years at the University of Virginia. I just didn't feel like I was finished. So I uh, worked two summer jobs the summer after I graduated and bought myself a single and began teaching myself to skull uh, and have thereafter been involved with coaching uh, at the Ravana Rowing Club, the Duluth Rowing Club, the Episcopal School of Dallas, the Savannah Country Day School, Middlebury College and Craftsbury. Uh, I, I don't think I'd have gone any of those places had, it not, had, I, had I gone out for rowing as a first year student. What a fascinating story. Lucky person who left that handbill. Lucky me. <laughs> so right now you're together on a rowing camp. You're teaching at the Craftsbury Center in Vermont in the Northeast of the US. Camps are a big part of rowing, and yet we all know that not everyone goes on camp. So, Troy, why would you go on camp as an athlete? Well, the, the single best reason I can think of is that too often we, we have so little time to, to focus solely on the technical aspects of rowing and sculling. We, we have to get our workout in, we have to get our physiological benefit and so on and so forth. And going to a camp uh, like Craftsbury or many others, you have an opportunity to row two or three times a day. And there's, at, at Craftsbury at least, there is effectively no physiological stricture on you. There is no workout to be done. Our camp focuses exclusively uh, on small boats instruction and it is entirely at your own chosen pace so you get an opportunity to get a very concentrated dose of coaching and more importantly a very concentrated dose of 
focusing on nothing other than does this make the boat go better than I was making it go before? Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a rare opportunity out there in the real world. And Marlene, what about you? Well, I think one of the, the benefits of going to a camp is, I, I view it as an investment as well, that you have the ability to focus on your rowing. Um, if you're, no matter what stage you are at your career, going to a camp, whether it's for a weekend camp or a week camp, you're going to accelerate your skills much, much faster than if you're at home taking one lesson a week or one lesson every two weeks. Because in a camp situation, you get so much feedback. You work on something, the coach swings around again, check that, oh, okay, that's doing better. Go work on it 15 or 20 minutes, swing around again. So, so it's sort of like there's a, there's a constant feedback loop that you practice, you work on one little element. As that gets better, something else gets better. You can maybe shift your focus a little bit. But the, the ability to be videotaped, which many, even though it's easier these days with, with iPhones and smartphones um, to do it, it's still different when somebody's really getting a high-quality video of you and has a system set up that can go really frame by frame, and they can explain in a review what the principles are and, and you know give you a different point of view because we're always looking for, we don't always have a lot of time in terms of whether it's a weekend or a four-day but as coaches, we're looking for like what are the one or two big items or big aspects of their technique that's going to give improve them the most during the camp. So um, we're often focusing on, on pretty major principles, I think, rather than like trying to give somebody a, a list of the 12 things they need to work on. You know, if, if there are a few major things that you correct, that often takes care of some other things on the list. But I think the, just the feedback, you know, many people, and, and a different point of view. You work with one coach at your club, and it's not everybody learns the same way. And, and even among the, the staff, we, we have different coaches who use different expressions for the same thing. And that might resonate with one camper, and another coach might say something a little bit different, and that's, that's their key to understanding that element of the stroke. So, you know, just this exposure to different coaching styles. So let's just run through, what is a day at camp like? Well, we start with coffee at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> um, and from there at around 6.55, the head coach usually begins to uh, gather everyone and we, we have established uh, small groups for the 7 a.m. row, and the coaches rotate through those small groups over the course of the camp. Uh, so, as, as Marlene was just saying, you're, you're guaranteed to get multiple perspectives because each day your small group is going to work with a different coach. Uh, so our first session of the day from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. is in those small groups, uh, treating it as a practice. Here are your five athletes, and uh, as a coach, you run that practice, and uh, decide what is uh, what is being emphasized and, and what to work on. Um, at 10, we come in and do video review of uh, 
So if, if we have a full camp, sometimes we videotape half the group one day and half the group the next day. If it's a smaller camp, we may videotape everyone on the same day, but we'll have a video review session at 10. And from, from there, uh, there's, there's a brief respite between the 10 a.m. video session and the 11.15 doc talk. And one coach in a single will, will pontificate on a chosen topic. And the second row of the day is a little more uh, free-flowing. The, the scholars launch and the campers are out, or excuse me, the, the, the campers launch and the coaches are out circulating, looking for them to work with them one at a time. And if, if we're doing our job well, the, the coaches will have listened to what uh, happened in their small group that morning and will talk to the coach that coached uh, the various campers. And likewise, will have seen some of the video review and the doc talk and be able to pick up on themes that are developing over the course of the week, both for the group as a whole and for the individual scholar. Um, and at, after we get off the water at 1245, we have lunch at one, they get some free time between one and four. Sometimes, sometimes there's a classroom session available, but it's usually an optional thing. And at 4 p.m., uh, we go out for what we call the free row, which really ought to be called the coach free row. Uh, we, we give them an opportunity to to not have to listen to us anymore and to work on whatever it is. It, it gets, the day begins very coaching intensive and becomes less and less coaching intensive so that by the end of the day, uh, we've left them alone and hopefully they're feeling better about their sculling and they're enjoying the, the lovely atmosphere and the, and the lake and the loons and all of that sort of thing. So that's a that's a typical day for us. That's fantastic. So when someone shows up, how do you find out? They usually, I expect, turn up with something they want to work on. How do you find out what that is and fit it into the big picture of everybody on the camp? We ask them <laughs> first, but they also, when they register, uh, each camper provides some basic information, such as how many years they've sculled, how many years they've rode sweep. Um, how would they would they call themselves a beginner, advanced, intermediate? So we, we have a, and their their height and weight. So we have a little bit of an idea, which helps us think about boatings. But when we actually have the introductions in the in the dining hall, we ask them a little bit about themselves and what they would like to work on. And when we we split up into small groups, I think each coach asks them, but we also try to continue building on what they're already working on. So we'll always um, say, well, what did you work on yesterday? And we'll try to build on that rather than just coming in with our own topic and sending them in a different direction. So we're constantly trying to build on what they're working on and bring it around and try to connect to what another coach said. Um, another important aspect here is that we coach from singles a lot. We do 50% of our coaching from singles and um, the other 50% from launches. So everybody who is on staff sometimes is in the launch, but, but we're actually rowing with people and demonstrating from, from the boat as well. That's fun. I did that at the weekend with some complete beginners. They were on their second ever lesson and it was a little bit windy and they're all in these nice playboats, which are frankly impossible to turn over. And I'm sitting there in my single going, if I go to the catch now and we get a gust of wind, what's going to happen? <laughs> so you've talked about the 
fact that your camp is a small boats camp. What are the advantages of small boats as a training tool? Well, uh, I think the, the biggest advantage to training in a single at a, in a camp setting is that you, you have to take ownership and responsibility of what's happening in that boat because there is no one else in the boat to blame. Uh, I, I like to include in, in the opening day doc talk the idea that uh, if, if we taped a, or if we put a rubber band around the oar handles and just cast the boat adrift, it would stay on an even keel all day in the absence of a weather event. So if you are in the boat and the boat is tipping, it must be something that you are doing and you just have to figure out what that is. But just this morning, we were videotaping one of our, one of our guests who's a pretty good intermediate scholar and she said something about this, this boat is tippy and I, I, I could not resist saying, it's not the boat that's tippy. So I, I think it went over okay. She's still speaking to me. So is it just singles you teach in or do you do pairs and doubles as well? Uh, we, we do no pairs at all and we have doubles available for some of the uh, less intensively coached rows. Just when, when people come with their buddies and they want to row a double or they've never rowed a double before, uh, we, we make that available but the, the instructional model is exclusively singles. Fantastic. And do you take people who've never sculled before, never been in a single before? They might, you know, scull in a quad. Oh, yes, absolutely. The other thing about being in a single is everybody can work at their own pace. And I think that's a really important aspect that there's no, there's no pressure for them to go fast or to keep up with anyone. And, and, and when a coach is working with a camper, you, you just work with them at whatever level they're at. And it doesn't matter. Like we have a lot of mixed intensities in every camp group. And it doesn't matter whether somebody is a first timer or a never, never when they come on the first day, for example, or they've sculled a little bit or they're quite experienced. Um, they all learn from each other in the, in the video sessions. And, you know, there's no pressure on them to, to perform or outperform anybody else. So they can just move, you know, it's important to move along at, at their own pace. And I think that's one of the best. And we have many different types of boats with different stability levels. So someone may start in a, um, you know, a, a wider recreational boat. And as they learn the patterns and get more comfortable, they move into another boat. Maybe by the end of the week, they're in a racing shell. So they all also have that aspect that they have control of when they're ready there's other boats that they can try if, if they want to they don't have to now we go on we, we haven't mentioned the the aspect of professional development but that's what popped into my mind as i was listening to to marlene describe all the different levels of scholars that we that we see at every camp uh everyone from never ever beginners to to very proficient scholars and it's, it's an interesting experience as a coach to, to shift gears in 90 seconds from coaching a never ever beginner uh, to coaching someone who is very conversant in, in the language of sculling and coaching. And it, it really, it challenges you to, to raise your game to, to be able to explain things to someone who has absolutely no familiarity with what you are talking about. It's, it's almost, uh, when, when you're coaching your, your, established program with athletes that you're working with over the course of years and years they've, they've come to know your 
uh, your diction and your um, linguistic and, and instructional habits. And you can, you can sort of lull yourself in, well, they know what I'm talking about. And that's not always true when you shift from, from one uh, camper that you've known for two days to another camper that you've known for two days. So it's, it's an interesting challenge and a, and a rewarding one. Also, when people come from different clubs, they, if they get regular coaching, they're used to hearing a coach explain something in that coach's language, and then they might hear what we say, and maybe it clarifies things. We try not to, con to confuse things, but, but you know, they're also getting a different point of view. But, but as a coach, you, you have to learn how to, to zero in on the priority item, I would call it. You know, what's, what's the foundation piece in their technique that's going to have the most positive chain reaction? That's fantastic. And as a coach uh, coming on camp, um, what are the particular challenges when you have someone new joining your coaching team? Well, oftentimes, uh, the, the coach has not coached in this sort of setting before and, and doesn't know the parameters of, of uh, what works well in terms of playing in the same sandbox with a bunch of other people. Uh, not, not, not every, it's, it's, it's not at all like coaching your, your high school program or your collegiate program. Uh, when, when you, when you have a coach who is a, a customer or a client, you don't have the, the, the athletic leverage of, uh, well, you're not going to make the boat. You know, that, that, that's just not available to you as a coach. Um, and by the same token, uh, it's, it, it puts a premium on diplomacy. Uh, because the, the sorts of things that your athletes that are going to be with you for a year might forgive you for are not the sorts of things that you may want to say to someone you're only going to know for a week. Marlene? Any uh, well, I think, first of all, you have to be collaborative. You know, I mean, when you've got coaches who come from a different... And, and you know, we may have sometimes five or six really pretty prominent people on staff. And, and I think the one thing that keeps things going well is when every, everybody buys into supporting what each other has to say. And, and as I said, you know, just the, the habit of working with a camper and saying, okay, who did you work with last? What were you working on? And whether you agree with that coach or not, you just, you, you have to continue to build that in, in a positive way. Most of the time, I think um, the coaches who tend to be on staff here, we're, we're pretty closely on the same page from a technique point of view, but there certainly are elements where we, we could vary. And when you're working with a camper, you have to, you know, if you have a different idea, you have to just maybe move, move ahead and say, well, what if you tried it this way and tell me if this works better for you? But in terms of the coaching staff, we all listen to each other's talks. We all listen to each other's video reviews. Um, we try in our talks to build on what another coach might have said in a previous talk. So it reminds people that, you know, we're connecting what, what Troy said at his doc yesterday, we're connecting that to what we're talking about in the video today. And, and just getting people to pay attention to what each other is saying and doing and, um, we learn from each other too. We're always getting new ideas and that's, that's half the fun of being here because 
as a coach, it's very easy to get used to hearing yourself. And, and after a while, you get tired of hearing yourself and you, you need some new language or some fresh idea, fresh input. So, you know, we're all keeping, we all keep notes, <laughs> you know, that, oh, that's a really good image for this or something one of the elite athletes said. It's, oh, that's a good image for this. And, you know, so you're always trying to, to freshen up your approach too. And just, I think just keeping an open mind keeps us going. <laughs> Marlene really got at the, the cardinal sin of coaching in a group setting, which is throwing another coach under the bus. Um, when, when, we, when we work well with each other and nobody wants to claim to, oh, you can listen to these other coaches, but I'm the one who really knows what's going on. That's sand in the gears of the program. And uh, as, as she said, we, we often have some, some uh, really outstanding coaches on the same staff. And if, if one of them tries to establish primacy, that just doesn't work all that well. We, we had a coach introduce himself one time by uh, listing all the recent accomplishments of his crews and, and finished his introduction by saying, so if you want to know what's really going on, come see me. That, that didn't go over well with the other six coaches. So... Uh, you're talking here about a very collegiate, collaborative coaching environment. And obviously the opposite of that is a doctrinaire coach or coaching environment where there's a leader who takes the sort of posture that, uh, Troy, you just described. In other um, programs, if you have one of those situations and you would prefer the other um, as a coach, what is a good way to go about introducing a change you mean from the point of view of a person who's running the program sometimes it depends on how open that person is to feedback because there are um, I think sometimes there could be coaches who might come across that way, but they're not necessarily aware that they come across that way. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like if somebody videotapes you and plays it back to you and then you say, wow, do I, you know, do I really talk with my hands so much or do I really say this that way? So, so first you have to see whether a coach is open to feedback. And if, if they are, um, I think, I think the main thing is giving constructive criticism and, saying, well, you know what, maybe it would be better for the camp. And, and I think one of the things that we can be a little bit different here is that when you're working in a camp setting, that is, this is not a club setting. You know, it's, it's a business setting, okay? Your camp is your product. Your coaching is your product. And if the end goal is for the program to be successful, then, and coaching is your product, you have to continually look for ways in, in the quality control to improve the product. So I think you have to, if you see something that's an obstacle to the program running smoothly, or you're getting feedback from your campers, if you, your campers on an evaluation are giving you feedback that's saying, we, this is something we think should be addressed, that's one of our prime uh, sources of information because they're the ones on, on the receiving end. But um, it just depends on the coach. I mean, and I think keeping, keeping things, feedback constructive among the coaching staff, trying to approach it from a point of quality control, that if there's something we can do a little bit better, a 
a talk would be a little bit shorter, more precise. Um, you know, these things like that. You're, I think you're, you're constantly addressing small things all, all the time. A lot of this does work itself out pretty naturally when when people coach multiple camps and you know they may they may have a, a rough start of uh, of coming in a bit uh, doctrinaire to use your word but um, it, it quickly becomes apparent to most perceptive people and most of the folks that we schedule are perceptive people that uh, that we are pretty relentlessly egalitarian and uh, the, the head coaches and the people who have been here for a lot of camps uh, do a pretty good job of modeling that. We have one head coach in particular that I'm thinking of. Uh, Kevin McDermott almost always, even when he is head coach, uh, works with the Nevers on the first day uh, just to sort of reinforce the idea that there there's no coach who has to work with this this is the coach for the proficient people and this is the coach for the beginners uh so we we model that expectation and for the most part um it it creates a culture that sustains itself yeah one of my favorite mantras is the best coach should work with the beginners so I'd like to uh, do a little bit of a focus on Craftsbury as, as a place, as a venue. Um, Troy, tell us a little bit about if I wanted to come on camp, what, what, what is it, what's it like? Well, to start with, it's beautiful. We're, uh, we're by, by the standards of urban folks, we are quote unquote out in the boonies. Uh, there, which, which is not an entirely fair characterization. There are grocery stores within a few minutes drive and, and places to go see movies and so on and so forth. But there, there aren't any population centers anywhere near Craftsbury, uh, Burlington, Vermont, which is about an hour and a half away and Montreal, which is about two hours and 15 minutes are the closest real cities. Um, so, you know, in, in the first place, you're going to be in a in a very outdoorsy setting. Um, it's only been recently, and in fact, we, we we still don't have reliable cell phone reception at the outdoor center. Uh, you can you can use Wi-Fi calling, and our our Wi-Fi works pretty well most of the time. But uh, you 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 might not want to to schedule your most important video conferencing meeting for your business for the time that you're at Craftsbury. Uh, the, the, the second thing that almost everyone hears about Craftsbury is how outstanding the food is. Um, when I, when I was involved with a number of, of different rowing clubs in my, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, itinerant is not it. Uh, no, it was, it's, it's a, when you're always walking from place to place, peripatetic. In my yeah, peripa peripatetic, the years. peripatetic wanderings of my twenties. God, that sounds pretentious. Uh, when I was when I was moving around a lot in my twenties, I kept hearing at every club I went to, "Oh, you got to go to Craftsbury. The food is fantastic." And I thought, okay, what that means? I mean, it's a summer camp, right? What they mean is that they're serving real eggs instead of powdered eggs. And the reality is, the food here is. Fantastic, uh, and one of the one of the things that that gets joked about at every single camp 
is is that you know how how are you how are you going to not gain weight at Craftsbury while you're here as a guest? Um, and you know our, our lake is also fantastic. It's uh, it's sheltered. Um, it's wooded. The sides are steep. Even when it's windy, it tends to remain rollable. If if not mill pond calm, we've had the most remarkable stretch of weather lately. Uh, September has been more like summer this year than August and July were, and we've we've had glassy smooth conditions every morning for the last six or seven mornings. So have focus on the food. So um, what about boats? Do I need to bring my own boat? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, we have uh, we have a fleet of forty Pinert racing shells in the boathouse, which are a really nice uh, sort of utilitarian but still fast, tough training boat. That at, at the waterline, uh, the wetted surface of a Pinert is very similar to any other racing shell, but because they're they're built largely of the hull, the hull is largely Kevlar. Uh, they're not indestructible, but they stand up very well to, to heavy use. And as Marlene mentioned before, we also have a fleet of, of wider beamed boats uh, for folks who would like to be in a slightly more stable and less anxiety producing environment for them. Um, a lot of people do bring their own shells, but if you are coming from, say, Los Angeles, that may not be practical. And in that case, we, we accommodate everyone with, with really nice equipment. And of course, the, the, the folks, uh, Dick Dreisigacker and Judy Gear, uh, who are uh, half of the ownership of Concept2, are, are the founders of the nonprofit foundation that runs Craftsbury. So uh, we, we, have, uh, we have great oars here as well. And a great activity, and the fitness center as well has all of uh, Concept 2's, all their equipment, like like the Ski Erg and the Dynamic Erg, um, plus they have a very big CrossFit gym and there's a lot of community programs actually that go on here as well, and a very beautiful trail system. So although scholars tend to be, they sit in the dining room quite, you know, three or four times a day, they have their, their meals. And so they're very oriented to, to looking at the lake, but if we go, on the other side of the road, we have a beautiful system of trails in the woods for mountain biking, walking, skiing. Um, so I always encourage people that if you want to take a break from the boat, you know, just go out for a beautiful walk in the forest. That sounds really amazing. So what does it cost to come on camp? Well, our, our six-day, what we call our week program that begins on Sunday afternoon and ends Friday morning, um, in, in the off-peak season, that's uh, $1,237, um, and that includes everything, the lodging, the three meals a day, the coaching. Uh, so it's, a, it's you know, on, on the one hand, uh, $1,200 and change uh, is, not a, is not a small investment. It's also a, a, an, an awfully good value in a vacation. Um, yeah, I, I didn't intend for that to become quite the commercial that it was, <laughs> but uh, for for the for the week camps, it's twelve thirty seven, and I think uh, when in peak season from from mid June through early August, it's uh, it's about another hundred dollars. 
those camps fill up and we have a wait list. And last, last, last year, our wait list was uh, 250 some odd people deep, uh, 170 individual names of, of folks who uh, signed up too late and that we couldn't accommodate because we, we just, we, we won't compromise the quality of the camp. Um, the the four-day program, which we, we run four days, mostly in the May and September seasons, what we call the shoulder seasons, uh, those are 847. And the weekend program that starts Friday afternoon and runs through Sunday lunch is 659. Great. And how do we book? It's it's all online. Uh, you, you register online and the... The information that uh, that Marlene alluded to earlier, uh, skill level and height and weight and years of experience and, and age and so forth, uh, that's all on the registration form. And once you send in the registration form, you uh, you call the front office with a credit card and put down your deposit, and that's all there is to it. I think another nice point to mention about Craftsbury is um, you can bring your non-rowing family with you here. Because and a lot of people do 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 that. Um, say maybe one person rows, the other uh, person wants to go mountain biking, or they want to kayak, or they want to canoe, or in the summer maybe they want to do the running camp, and maybe the wife wants to do the running camp, the husband wants to skull. But um, it's also a place where people come. There's lots of other things people can do if while your mother or father are sculling, or whether you're daughter is sculling. Um, so, so there's also a lot of choices of cabins and cottages where families can stay together if, if they want to as well. And the website is craftsbury.com. Yes. Fantastic. Now, I want to move on to talking about different sorts of camps. So some of our listeners we know are coaches who are working on high school programs and university programs and regular clubs. Um, What's the purpose of going on camp if you're in a competitive racing uh, youth environment? Again, I think when you, I think that there's great value in going to another environment. As you said, you know, you're used, to, maybe you're used to your boathouse, you train there every day, but when you go to a fresh setting, for example, many, uh, we can take, talk about elite Nordic, Nordic skiing teams. They regularly, sometimes every month, every eight weeks, they change locations. Just for freshness, psychological freshness, if you stay in the same situation over and over and over again, it, get, it gets stale. And I think just, just having some input of another um, location, plus, as I said, exposure to coaching, like we talked about. Um, I think there's even value in a program, such as say, maybe it's a high school program, Maybe it's a college program. They or what if they organize their own camp and they go to on a retreat setting with maybe it's your regular coach, but you have certain time where you spend time with your team, one more focused um, on your team, on your skills, spending time together, getting to know people at the table, um, which is also a big part of our sport because it's it's very social. And I think you get to people meet each other. There are people who become friends who come back every year for the same camp simply to see, to have a reunion with the people they were in camp with last year. But, but I think even on the, the club level or 
say a junior high school team, even them organizing their own camps, going somewhere different to be together and have that extra time off the water is, is really a big part of building the glue in your, in your team. And do you have a view on how to structure the workouts through a, you know, five-day camp for that age group? If it's a training camp or if it's a technique camp? Training. If it, if it were a training camp, um, I would say similar emphasis to what, what Troy mentioned. Um, I would put... I. If, when I organize a camp, the way I focus on it is usually the first session is probably technically the most intensive. Maybe it's not the most intensive physically, but, but always I would use that first session because, first of all, they're more rested at that point. That's a better time early in the day for doing technical training. Um, I, I usually would put just make the second session, say the late morning session, more the more priority session as in terms of being a workout session and if there is sometimes if, there, if there's a third session go back to something shorter maybe more technically oriented but but a shorter session something that's a little bit more of a skill session or recovery session so so i usually would put the the harder training session in the middle of the technique session Try. I, I think, um, well, I, I just told this story to some of the, the year-round athletes that we're working with, uh, and it's, it's going to start out sounding like a digression, but I will come back to the point very quickly. There's, there's a very common thing that happens when, when a couple gets married. Someone wants to offer them the advice that you don't want to go into this thinking that this relationship is 50-50. It's... It's a hundred and a hundred. You've both got to give the whole thing, right? And so in, in any camp setting, uh, it, I think a lot, of, a lot of people come to the sport and they've heard some sort of 25% true platitude of, oh, this sport is 90% fitness or this sport is 80% fitness. And the reality is, like the, like the marriage, it's not – 80-20, it's not 90-10, it's not 50-50, it's 100 and 100. And in any camp setting, uh, you, should, you should constantly be striving to be a student of the sport and to, to, to understand how to move the boat in ways uh, that don't waste your wattage. Uh, if, if you're constantly focused on, on competition and physiology, then you're missing half of the sport. So you know, whether, whether you, I, I agree with Marlene that it's, that it's usually best uh, to have your most technique intensive session when the athletes are fresh. Um, and so in, in any given day, uh, if, if there's, if there's a training focus and a competitive focus, there needs to be time to work exclusively on things that will, that will help athletes move the boat better and not waste their watts isn't the phrase that I used moments ago. Um, and, and also an opportunity to, to get out there and beat each other up because that's what athletes like to do. I love that. <laughs> I can see the appeal of both the beating it up and the other. 
tell me more about your favorite um, camp drills or exercises that you feel um, add the most to someone's benefit of being with you and doing the technical work. Troy, what's yours? I, I was hoping you were going to uh, throw this one to Marlene first so that I would have time to think about <laughs> it, but now I'm going to have to do it from, from the hip. Um, you know, I, honestly, my, my favorite stuff to do uh, goes, goes back to this, this um, well, comfort in the boat, um, playing in the boat, getting, getting what we, 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 have a, we have a coach here this morning who, right before her doc talk, was playing in the boat and doing boat tricks. And someone called out as she was uh, coming down to the waterfront and watching this coach, show off and I, I thought well okay but yes it is but no it's not um you know it's it boat tricks if if it if it gets you to play in the boat and to be more at home in the boat then it's a great thing um we i i, I gave i gave my doc talk on this one time and there was a there was a, a woman who was a fairly beginning scholar and at the end of the talk uh she she said, Troy, I like your tricks, but they're not for me. <laughs> and I thought, uh, but they are for you. They're for everybody, right? Uh, learning learning to own the space and just enjoy sculling. We can we can get very humorless about it if we always approach it as, I have an hour. I have to get my workout done. Take take a little time to to play in the boat. And I I had another answer that if if I think of it while Marlene is is uh, giving her uh, part of, of this question, uh, I'll come back in, but I, I, I had it and lost it, sorry. Well, I think one of the things too that differentiates sculling from some other, uh, some other sports, when we taught cross-country skiing here, which, which I did for many, many years, uh, it was only normal at the end of, at, at the end of some lesson or, or session, we're doing tricks, we're trying to ski backwards, we're trying to do this turn, that turn, we're jumping off things, you were always playing on skis constantly. You were always trying to, to do something different or, you know, and, and people don't always think that they can do that in the boat, you know, because again, they're in the boat. And so I think just the, the idea of getting a little bit out of the boat is, 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 is important. And, um, but one of the things I said, if I had to um, identify two things um, one would be uh, what I call thinking in the direction of the boat and helping the athlete under just get their basic orientation in the boat, that their movements are helping the boat move towards the finish line, that it's not so much where their eyes are looking. And, um, and I like to use the drill called skimming where, where they, they basically they come to arms and body away, but then if they just soften their knees, they learn how to to press the boat past them, to, to open the oar handles, push, push the boat past them, to bring them up to the top of the slide versus pulling themselves up the slide in the direction that their eyes are looking, but to get that orientation that we want to keep moving, we want to keep the run, we want to keep moving in the direction that we're going. So that often is, is like a big light bulb for people because they've never thought about the direction that they're going because they're not looking that way. And um, 
and I like doing drills that that pattern motions. You know, the release is such a um, it's such a tricky part of the stroke, and it's a part of the stroke that that takes many people a long time to master. Like the the, the entry and putting the blade in the water takes a long time to do, like really well like you know in a, two frames on a video or three frames but but people can visualize it and they can understand that the release is much more elusive and and i like to do stationary drills that help people absolutely learn the pattern to to keep their boat level to release feather arms away without the blades touching the water keeping the rigor stable and then back in and learning how to do that stationary because once they can do that, it goes right into their stroke. And um, there's, there's immediate transfer, and that's how they begin to learn how to keep their blades off the water. Because I think that that is one of our, um, certainly for many people, they, don't, they think, oh, well, someday my blades are just going to miraculously come off the water. Your blades will never miracul miraculously come off the water. You have to commit to doing that. And, um, and you have to learn how to pattern those motions, if you can, if you can get really good and do uh, release feather, arms away, body away, and then back in without the boat tilting, without the boat touching the water, you're rowing with your blades off the water. So, so those are sort of two of my go-to drills. Um, at least they 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 get a very um, quick appreciation of the sensitivity of the release and the feather. And and then I tell people, you know what? Every time you turn around. Just, just practice a couple, do, do two or three attempts and then row, blend it right back into your rowing. But just do, do short little bouts of it frequently. And, and uh, you know, then they start thinking, well, you know what, I really, I really can row off the water, but you have to have the right patterns in order to do that. That, that did remind me of, I'm, I'm not sure it was the thing that I was searching for, but uh, one of our coaches, uh, Daniela uh, Nachezelova, um, I'm pretty sure I just butchered her surname's pronunciation. I apologize, but uh, to Daniela, um, she was during her doc talk today. Uh, she she showed something, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to 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 show it in this venue. But um, on the recovery, she turned her hands vertical like so, and the the oar handle was. The oar handles were under her pinkies, and she wasn't gripping the oar at all. And to return to part of your original question about what, what are your favorite things to do, uh, I think one of the most eye-opening things uh, is just letting go of an oar handle, which oftentimes you'll hear coaches whose primary goal is to keep beginners dry telling someone, once you're in the boat, never let go of your oar handles, never let go of your oar handles. And so I, I like to get people out in the boat and encourage them to let go of an oar handle and find out that, in fact, there is nothing inher inherently dangerous about it. Uh, there's, not a, there's not a sea monster that's going to grab you because you let go of an oar handle. And so during her doc talk, Daniela was regularly, just sort of routinely, letting go of an oar handle and chatting and gesturing with her hand. And then she did this little drill where she, she, you know, she, she hooked the oar handles for the drive and guided them. And then she turned her hands vertical and had the oar handles under her hands. And it, it's, it's a very eye-opening thing for people to see that these things that they thought were their lifelines, oh, this is what's keeping me safe and dry, 
that's not what's keeping you safe and dry at all. So I, 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 I think it's, it's important to, to sort of push people in the direction of, of having these little moments of, of the, the light bulb going on, as it were. Um, and that's, that's a drill that, or, or an exercise that tends to produce that sort of realization. Yeah, the karate chop, the little karate chop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do open palm sculling where you, you come up the recovery and then you put your hand flat, but you're talking about rotating it. That's fantastic. I want to try it now. And she's having fun at the same time, you know, just, just to get really comfortable in, in the boat and ease of movement, for example. That's fantastic. Now, I'd like to wrap up with talking about the things that we can do to accelerate our learning, because camp might be a once, if you're fortunate, twice a year occurrence for the vast majority of athletes. What are the things that um, an athlete can do to accelerate their learning, Molly? On their own? You can choose. Take, I'll take as many answers you, as you want to give. Video review. Uh-huh. I think uh, feedback. Take, taking notes is, is one thing that I really would emphasize and... and um, and stress in a camp setting. We, we see too many people who come in and uh, you, you, you buy into this, uh, this myth that you're going to remember everything that every coach told you. Oh, I, was, I was there for a week and I heard so many wonderful things. And you think that when you get home, you're going to remember all 175 things and you won't. Uh, having said that, I, I, I always end that story with the with the story of my own notes from coaching conferences and I, uh, you know, they're, they're gathering dust in my, in my storage room. And when I go in and I look at them, I, I see something immediately. And I think, I, I think that's great. Why? I, I went to this coaching conference six years ago and I've never used that yet. And then I put the notebook away and then I probably don't go out and use it either. But it, it is, it is nice to have a written record of what was said to jog your memory about something that that may uh, otherwise disappear, um, and the the second answer I have for this, and I think I I, I will probably be done at that point, um, is, and I'm, I'm I'm taking this directly from from one of our other directors, Rick Ricky. He's very fond of saying this, and also from my my experience of being married to a Feldenkrais practitioner, but stop now and then and let your nervous system take a break and process what it just did. It, I, I, I knew a fellow at a rowing club one time who his, his regimen was to crash up and down the lake at 28 to 30 strokes a minute, three laps a day, every day without fail. I never saw him stop and drink water. I never saw him stop and take a break. And not, not only is it physiologically, uh, backward, for lack of a, a better word, uh, it doesn't give your nervous system a chance to process what it's done. If you can take, take time to slow down, take time to stop, and, and uh, even if you don't reflect mindfully and meditatively, your brain appreciates the break, and so does your body for that matter. I know when, when, I, was, when I was growing competitively, whenever I had the chance to work with another coach, and, uh, and for many years when I was training competitively, I was also coaching 
here at Craftsbury. So we had a lot of a lot of great coaches coming through the program. And if you were lucky, you could get out on the water with them in between sessions. And and I always made it a habit to write as soon as I finished that session, I would go write notes about what we worked on. And then through the course of the year, if I flipped back through my logbook, I could read maybe just even four or five or six phrases, and then I could recall the whole session. And, you know, as you said, it just sort of jogged your memory. Oh, yep, that was a really good point to keep keep the compression or this, you know, whatever the point was is you, you could recall it just by keeping, you know, not even a lot of notes really, but but you do forget and you, you forget. And when you hear some term that, um, gets you into a different space, so to, so to speak, or say, you know, it's a, somebody's trying to get more length and they, they're, you want them to work more with their hips. You know, you have to give them a, a new idea how to keep that system moving and, and keep them comfortable. But, um, but I think notes, videotaping, uh, drill work, but drill work that you then integrate into your sculling, you know, not drill work for the sake of, okay, let's do 5 million pause drills of, you know, a pause drill, you can use a pause drill at arms and body weight for 70 different things. So it depends what you want to focus on. But the, the key thing is you, you have to know what you're focusing on and make that relevant to your sculling and, and um, not do too many repetitions, five repetitions, five strokes, and then row and, and come back to it rather than, try, you know, the more repetitions you do, you're probably going to deteriorate through, like if you're doing like, 50 pause drills, you know, probably by the time you get to 50 or it's not going to be very good anymore. But, um, but I think always coming back to drill work to isolate something and then bring it back into, into, you know, integrate it into the whole motion. And actually in taking mental pauses um, are a good or short breaks are a good way to have some drills, let it integrate a little bit, then bring it into your, into your style. That's so true. I uh, I have a, a mantra, which is that I like to do a drill at least three times in a single practice session, just to see if you can get it really get it right, and then do it again. Was it a fluke? Right. Or someone will tell you, "Oh, I've done that one already." Well, do it again. <laughs> you have to practice it more than once. I I love pause drills, but it has always amused me that in a sport that places a premium on rhythmic continuous motion, that seems to be everybody's favorite. Let's do a pause drill. What? <laughs> I was thinking back about your point about training diaries and taking notes and um, I, I have uh, exactly the same experience that uh, you do of looking back on notes or, or failing to look back on notes and the one great insight that I really enjoyed was reading Brad Allen Lewis. He published his training diary from the year prior to winning the Olympic gold medal in 84 in Los Angeles. And it's called Lido for Time. And Lido was just the name of a circuit that they rode around the Newport Beach Lido, I'm guessing, uh, around an island. And uh, he did a timed piece. And literally a, a week ago, I found a guy on Twitter who claims to have beaten Brad's time which is, it's around 14 minutes, it's a long piece. And uh, I was kind of impressed because in the course of the training diary, you see how he builds and he builds and he has setbacks. And of course, his goal is not to do a fast time around the Lido, his goal is to go to the Olympics. And that was really instructional for me. Have, have you guys read this book? 
I've, I, read, I've read Assault on, on Lake Decetus. I, I haven't read the, the Lido Island book I, either, um, but it, it, does, it does remind me that it's, it's, it's good to have a home course benchmark. And everywhere I've been, we've had some kind of piece that best utilizes the local geography or, or utilizes the local geography to best advantage. And at, at, uh, at Craftsbury, we do the, the head of the Hosmer. And since we, we have, uh, the, the lake is just over two miles long. We have a, a 2,800 meter piece, a little bit under 2,800 meters if you steer it well. Uh, from one end of the lake to the other. And I, I, I always like to tell incoming under 23 athletes, uh, I, I'm much more interested in finding out what your time is for the head of the Hosmer than I am in finding out what your 2K or your 6K erg time is. And I like a course where the home team who knows how to steer it well has a very small advantage. <laughs> in Boston, we used to have for the head of the Charles, we used to actually row a four mile piece. We had a bridge to bridge piece. That was sort of our classic fall training piece. Yep. At Tardway Scholars, we had one that was called a black boy run, which is basically the boat race twice. So it's not quite the full length because the black boy is um, actually it's yellow. But isn't that lovely how things change? We on the lake at the weekend, our lake, we uh, there's a lot of other water users, including a, a very good canoe club called North Shore Canoe Club. And they had a bunch of people out and we, we were near the coach and he said, where are you circulating? And we told him and he said, but we're about to change and we're about to go and go over to Sue's Hole. And I was like, where's Sue's Hole? He said, over there in that corner. I was like, oh, we call that water wise. Why is it called Sue's Hole? He said, well, Sue fell in and then she got in a hole. So it's called Sue's Hole. Right then. Me too. Well, we have a lot of data on the head of the Hosmer that goes back many, 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 many years. So it it reminds me of when I was a kid um, in my grandparents' house. They had a small um, part of the house next to the door frame, which, as you grew on your birthday, they would measure you. And my grandmother took enormous pleasure in saying. You're the same height as your Auntie Jane was when she was seven. And you're like, I'm six. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, it's been a complete delight. Thank you for your investment in energy, for your insights, uh, for everything that you've given us this morning. Please tell the listeners where they can get a hold of you should they have questions. Uh, sculling at craftsbury.com would work for me. I'd say mine would be Royal Row, same as my family name, R-O-Y-L-E-R-O-W at gmail.com. Fantastic. It's been a complete delight, and we hope to uh, get you back on at some point in the future. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>